When Francis heard the voice of God at San Damiano tell him to rebuild my church, he set out to do exactly that. In the beginning, Francis begged for materials to reconstruct the small chapel, stone by stone. Yet, as we have also heard, God's invitation for Francis to rebuild the church involved much more than repairing the stone walls of San Damiano. At the time, the church was enmeshed with politics, seeking power for herself, fighting enemies through the Crusades, and amassing great wealth. In response to God's call, Francis, Claire, and their small but growing communities followed Jesus faithfully. They experienced joy and suffering, poverty and abundance, contemplation and community, and they became peacemakers. Though they did not intend to confront the church directly, their lives of simplicity and sacrifice sparked long-lasting renewal that indeed rebuilt Christ's church. The church today is just as in need of renewal as it was in the 13th century. In our last walk along Via Divina, the Franciscan Way, we will explore how Jesus calls us, like Francis and Claire, to walk humbly with him and rebuild his church in love. pilgrims. We're coming to the end of our journey together, but hopefully the beginning of a journey with you, learning how to get in touch with how your body feels, what your body needs in the moment, and maybe not being so afraid to check in in those spaces, those physical spaces, and allow them to be even a window into how your soul is doing. I'm going to add one more to our repertoire, and I invite you to find a quiet place to stand or sit, so you might just pause as you find a place behind a tree or somewhere where you can feel a tiny bit of privacy. And you'll continue your walk after this. And when you're ready, stand with your feet hip-width apart. Don't let your knees lock, so let them be a little bit bent. And just let your weight go from your right leg to your left leg slightly. Feeling the ground underneath you. And then finding a nice middle place where your weight is evenly distributed between each leg. And feeling grounded to the earth. Just imagine a circle of light. Just using our imaginations to play. That circles around your ankles and all the walks that they've been doing. Bringing warmth, bringing healing. It circles through your calves and around your knees, around your thighs, your hamstrings, your glutes, your hips, and then all the way up your spine. Almost like a blanket of of warmth, of sun, that then falls onto your chest, down your stomach. And perhaps each arm feels a little circle of light going down it. 
imagining it coming out of your fingers. Just allowing Jesus to meet you in his light, in your body in this way. And with this sense of light, I'd like you to very gently touch your fingers to your jaw. Little motion circles one direction or the other around the jaw. You can even open the jaw and close it. That mandibular joint holds a lot of tension for us. So let's just start bringing a lightness into the muscles of our face, which we don't normally address. So much expression, so much of life happens in our countenance. And I want these next few moments to be about resting your countenance in the presence of your creator's countenance and simply being. Move your hands up to your temples. Again, just enjoying little circles and nice breaths. They don't have to be huge, but just stay in your breath. And as funny as it seems, I want you to do little taps on your cheekbones all the way underneath your eyes. Just gentle little taps to your sinus cavities. Just bringing a little lightness into that space. Little taps, gentle taps. And then from here, tap all the way to your forehead. And you can continue with the tapping, or it can feel really nice to just make a straight line with a little bit of pressure with your fingers from the middle of your forehead to your temples. And again, from the middle of your forehead, just smoothing out the forehead. Lift your arms to the sky, but this time I want the palms to be facing you. Big breath in as you reach. And as you exhale, I want the fingertips to just drip down your face really softly, really kindly, like a gentle spring rain. We'll try that twice more. Big breath up. Arms up, palms facing you, and just let them trickle down your face. And one last time. Big breath in. Palms face you. Let them trickle down your face, maybe even now down your neck, down your chest. Let your arms rest. Notice a potential stillness in your muscles and the freedom of not needing to express anything on your countenance except the essence of who you are in your natural state and creation before your creator. Amen. Today's breath prayer comes from the prophet Isaiah. 
In his time, the people of God thought that true worship involved festival celebrations, sacrifices at the temple, and rituals like fasting. God gave Isaiah a different picture of what true worship really was. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke? To set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to give your share of food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? When these words were spoken, much of the land had been destroyed and abandoned. Assyrian and Babylonian armies had leveled bustling towns and villages. Even so, God promised, if you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. Now, let's try breathing these promises from Isaiah 58. Get into a comfortable walking rhythm and try to pattern your breathing to your walking. As you breathe in, embrace God's vision for you, repairer of broken walls. Then breathe out, restorer of streets with dwellings. Continue breathing these words or matching them to your walking pace for a couple minutes. Repairer of broken walls. Restorer of streets with dwellings. What is a broken wall in your life that you lament? And what's one stone you could pick up to help repair or restore it? For me, a broken wall I have been lamenting recently are the ways the church has been complicit in systems that oppress. I grieve the ways we have not seen the image of God in those who are different from us and have torn down the walls of the diverse and beautiful kingdom of God. What about you?
Christianity in 13th century Europe was captive to money and power. Pope Innocent III declared, as the moon derives its light from the sun, so the kings of Europe derive their power from the papacy. The church was aligning herself to the empire, the ruling power of the time, taking up the sword and hoarding the wealth of nations. The church's bloody crusades not only rained down terror in Muslim lands, but among their Orthodox brothers and sisters in the East as well. Following his meeting with the Sultan, Francis returned to the familiar stones of Assisi. Although barely 40 years old, his physical condition and the condition of the Franciscan order were both deteriorating. Francis's community was deeply divided. Franciscans debated specifics of how to live out their rule of life, how much to align with Rome, and what level of wealth was appropriate for the order. When Francis came to his much-loved Portioncola after months away, he saw that a house had been built on the land. Sadness and anger filled him. This was not how he lived, nor how he had invited others to live in the poverty of Christ. The desire for worldly comfort and power he had seen in the church had come even to his own brotherhood. For centuries, obsession with physical and organizational structures kept out people who Jesus invited in. It kept out those who had little to offer financially, like the lepers and the poor, or those who strayed from the religious laws, like the woman at the well or the wandering stranger. Yet it was in these people that Francis had discovered God's love and joy, and whom he considered the foundation of a renewed church. Now standing before this house, built by and for the brothers, Francis saw his dream disintegrating. His heart broke over his community and the larger church. What did the call to rebuild the church mean now? With the pain of his failing body and failing community, Francis continued to seek out time with his first love, Jesus. In 1224, he walked with two of his brothers to a familiar place of solitude. A nobleman had provided the brothers with access to Mount Laverna, a wooded mountain in Tuscany. On this mountainside, surrounded by austere rock formations and pine trees, Francis went to his knees praying to know both the suffering and love of Jesus more deeply. When Francis returned from this period of solitude, a friend noticed that Francis had dark, open wounds on his hands and feet and a gaping opening in his side which regularly bled. Some say that God had given Francis the stigmata, a Greek word meaning marks, whether they were marks of Christ's crucifixion or, as others claim, the rotting of Francis's flesh from contracting leprosy, Francis carried the brokenness of the church and the divisiveness of his order in his body while continuing to respond in love. As you walk, where does your heart break for the church, your community, or the world? Consider how you carry these troubles in your soul and your body.
A year later, Francis went to live in a simple lean-to against the wall of the restored San Damiano church. In his older years, he wanted to be close to his most devout follower, Claire. In a nod to the life of courtly love that Francis had left long ago, he called her Lady Poverty, and so did most of the brothers. In Francis's mind, Claire was the ideal woman, a woman who carried within her, better than anyone else he knew, the attributes of the poor Christ. After decades of commitment to poverty, chastity, and obedience, Francis found himself full circle, back at San Damiano where it all began. In that cold reed hut, Francis had time to think about what God meant in his call to rebuild the church. Many people during his lifetime were disappointed in the church and had given up on it. They were frustrated, maybe even embarrassed, to identify with an institution that was wed to power, full of empty ritual, and deeply divided. It was no accident that Francis first fell in love with Jesus in the courtyard of a broken down church. After that time in Laverna, I returned to my brothers, carried on the back of a donkey. Each step, each breath was painful. Yet I had greater peace for the poor Christ had met me in my suffering. He entered my broken heart and body. Something had changed. It wasn't just these wounds on my hands and feet and side. It was Jesus's wounds. He had chosen to share with me. I returned and wept over the continued divisiveness within the fellowship. To hold even this community as my own possession would mean abandoning my commitment to Christ and to his holy poverty. It is him I most desire. So I went to where I first heard the call to rebuild the church, San Damiano. And when I walked onto the grounds, I could barely even see light and shadow, but my mind could still see the gardens on the edges of the courtyard, and my heart felt at peace, knowing the sisters were praying in the monastery that we had built for them. Within the reed hut was the place of poverty that I desired. I lay in the dark with my sight nearly gone. Rodents ran over my legs, my chest even nibbled at the few tufts of hair I had left, and my wounds throbbed. Yet even in this place of deprivation, joy bursts forth. Words of praise to God came through me. I saw a vision from God of those separated and by hatred and divergent perspectives coming together. Though I lie still in my mind, I was leaping. I was again dancing and singing along the stone streets of Assisi. 
But this time I wasn't searching for a human lover, no. This time, without question, I knew a lover who would never leave, who renewed my heart. I laughed and sang as only a fool could. Over the course of his life, Francis had fallen completely in love with Jesus and only wanted others to experience the beauty of his beloved. Asked why he often could be found weeping, Francis replied, because love is not loved. Francis remained wholeheartedly devoted to his first love. The song that he wrote during his time at San Damiano became known as the Canticle of the Creatures and was written in Italian vernacular. It was the first recorded poem we have in the language of the ordinary Italian people. To the end, Francis lived out of a place of humility in the way of his teacher, Jesus. In modern English, his poem sounds like this. Most High all-powerful, good Lord. Yours are the praises, the glory, and the honor, and all blessing. To you alone, Most High, do they belong, and no human is worthy to mention your name. Praised be you, my Lord, with all your creatures, especially Sir Brother Son, who is the day and through whom you give us light. And he is beautiful and radiant with great splendor and bears a likeness of you, most high one. Praised be you, my Lord, through sister moon and the stars in heaven. You formed them clear and precious and beautiful. Praised be you, my Lord, through brother wind and through the air, cloudy and serene and every kind of weather through whom you give us sustenance to your creatures. Praised be you, my Lord, through Sister Water, who is very useful and humble and precious and chaste. Praised be you, Lord, through Brother Fire, through whom you light the night, and he is beautiful and playful and robust and strong. Praised be you, my Lord, through our sister, Mother Earth, who sustains and governs us, and who produces various fruits with colored flowers and herbs. Praised be you, my Lord, through those who give pardon for your love and bear infirmity and tribulation. Blessed are those who endure in peace, for by you, Most High, they shall be crowned. Praised be you, Lord God, through our sister, bodily death from whom no one living can escape. Woe to those who die in mortal sin. Blessed are those whom death will find in your most holy will, for the second death shall do them no harm. Praise and bless my Lord and give him thanks and serve him with great humility. In this song, 
Francis shows the ultimate image of the rebuilding to which God called him. A rebuilding that involves all of creation and opposing forces coming together, sun and moon, fire and water, tribulation and peace. It contains a theologically mature worldview, highlighting the essential relational nature of all things. The church is not static. It is living, growing. It is built on love. And so love is what ultimately rebuilds. It requires humility, the kind of humility demonstrated in the canticle of the creatures. We are not the masters of our environment, the consumers of her resources. No, we are sustained by the glorious harmony of all God's creation. Many are giving up on the church today, not because they see a church that is irrelevant with members who have nothing to say, Rather, they see a church that does not have enough love to offer and members who have too much to say. Francis and Claire rebuilt the church because they started small, choosing to see, serve, and love the most marginalized of their day. They did not seek to mobilize a movement or start a revival. They simply sought to give their whole hearts to Jesus to walk in poverty, obedience, and chastity, or loyalty, and to ultimately live a life of grand humility and of love with all people and toward all creation. On the night before Jesus was crucified, the night of the Passover feast, Jesus showed his followers what this new kind of love must look like. Jesus knew that his time was short, and it was essential that he gave his followers the blueprint for the church. This was a radically different community from the religious communities of their day. This blueprint couldn't be taught. It had to be modeled. During this sacred and important meal that marked the deliverance of the Jewish people centuries earlier from the grip of Pharaoh, Jesus got up and shocked his disciples. He took off his outer garment, wrapped a towel around his waist, and knelt in front of one of his disciples with a basin of water. They did not expect this, not from their teacher and leader during the Shabbat dinner. Everyone stopped talking. What would he do next? He took the foot of a disciple and began to wash it, slowly and with great care. Jesus loved them until the end. A love that didn't have much to say, but everything to show. Sandal-covered feet were filthy in a day where walking on Middle Eastern dirt roads littered with animal dung was the norm. Foot washing was a practical love, but it was also a shocking, disruptive, unexpected, countercultural kind of love when done by the Messiah. In fact, in John's account, he added a line of theology to help us understand what was going on. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal. Jesus, more than anyone else in history, had authority and power. 
His response to this power was not to climb above others, but to take the posture of a servant. Love knew exactly who he was, and so he showed it. Similarly, Francis's acts of joy, charity, and kindness came out of knowing exactly who he was, Christ's own beloved. His true goal in life was to imitate Christ as completely as he could. That moment at the Passover meal must have been terribly awkward, filled with tension and vulnerability. As the story continues, we find Jesus coming to the feet of Peter, his number one follower, who tells him, stop. Oh, I know, it's a test, he thought. The others won't say it, but I will. You will never wash my feet. Give me the basin. If anything, I'll wash your feet. Peter insisted that we serve God. God doesn't serve us. So, Jesus paused. He waited a moment to let Peter's resistance to this downward path sink in, for his own pride to become clear. Peter's pride was not a power-hungry pride, just the ordinary, let-me-do-it-myself kind of pride. After a moment or two, Jesus instructed Peter, If I don't do this for you, then you have no part in me. To which Peter replied, Then dunk me, Lord, not just my feet, but wash me, head to toe. Pride was still driving Simon Peter, just in another form. Not the kind that said, I'll wash my own feet, but the kind that said, I'll be the one who goes all in while my friends sit by and say nothing. The pride of dunk me, Jesus, is the kind that wants to show everyone in the room how passionate I am for the kingdom. Let me demonstrate my commitment. Still another pause from Jesus, the pause of patience. Peter didn't understand quite yet. He had a long, difficult night ahead of him. A night when he would make bold promises of fidelity that he wouldn't keep. One in which he'd take up a sword. But tonight, Peter just needed to put out his feet and let love love him. Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet, Jesus responded. Then he reached for Peter's other foot. Jesus finished washing all their feet. He carefully folded the towel, got up off his knees, put on his robe again, and asked if those around the table understood what he had done. This was the kingdom way. Now that I, the Lord, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. This was the critical blueprint for the church Jesus wanted to build, a way very different from the world's way. Jesus had more to teach that night in the upper room and more to demonstrate. Like when he broke the bread and poured the wine, talking about his body and blood, and when he spoke about staying connected to the vine of God. But the deeper lessons to this first band of followers began with Jesus demonstrating the extent, the full extent of his love. The love that gets down on the floor and washes dirty feet. 
Near the end of his life, Claire asked Francis to visit the sisters and preach. The convent had been offered a parcel of land and they needed wisdom. Should they, as Claire wanted, refuse the land in keeping with their commitment to a humble life of poverty, knowing how land ownership might inflate their pride? Or was God calling them to own the land so they could expand their ministry as some sisters wanted? When Francis arrived, Claire was devastated by his appearance. She had rarely seen him in the previous year, and now he was barely recognizable. Nearly blind and so weak, one of the brothers had to assist him. Francis of Assisi was a physical wreck. His skin was almost gray, and his limbs had been reduced to twigs. Malaria had enlarged his spleen and liver, which had swollen his abdomen. Claire choked back her horror at the sight of this man who had almost single-handedly rebuilt San Damiano stone by stone. His sermon that day was delivered without uttering a word. Francis brought with him a bowl of ashes, which he sprinkled over his head. Then he spread the ashes around his chair. After a moment of reflection, he stood up and bowed to the sisters, leaving the room. It was a profound call to recognize we are dust, and to dust we will return. The silent sermon Francis preached to Claire and her sisters that day was a reminder that land and money are temporal. The day after Francis visited Claire and her sisters, a vote was cast over whether to accept the parcel of land. Not a single sister voted to receive the property. They would remain poor Claire's in humble poverty. Not long after writing the Canticle of the Creatures, Francis returned to the Porciuncula. Shortly afterward, he passed away. Claire asked that his body be transported past San Damiano so she could bid a final farewell. In the years that followed, Claire carried the calling to rebuild the church through the prayers of the sisters, the embracing of poverty, and caring for the church with the towel and basin. This is the grand humility that we hear at the end of the canticle and that we see in the lives of these two extraordinary people. However, rebuilding the church is not primarily about the work of Francis or about our work, even if we do so with the towel and basin. As Francis and Claire learned throughout their journeys and Peter learned in the upper room, Jesus invites us to receive his love before serving others. This love, along with the spirit that Jesus left his followers after his death, resurrection, and ascension, provides the foundation from which to love others. Francis, Claire, and their companions became the hands and feet of Christ on earth. Theirs was not a quest for honor and glory, but of joy and suffering. Rather than the abundance purchased by gold or land, they received God's abundance that came from simplicity, service, 
community, and contemplation. Instead of crusading against their enemies, they were called to build bridges with them. They came alongside Christ as he came alongside the most marginalized with love. In these ways, they indeed rebuilt the church. Nearly a thousand years later, this spirit of rebuilding the church lives on in the Franciscans and poor Clares, as well as lay members of their order, as they dedicate their lives to serve the poor Christ through joy and suffering. This spirit lives among those who are inspired by Francis and Clare to look anew at the good news that Jesus taught, a gospel that opens us to encounter the divine and the ordinary, embody the love of Christ, and experience the joy of the Lord as we love and serve those next to us. As we come to the end of our walks, let's take time to sit in this love of Jesus that so compelled Francis and Claire. Where does this love of Jesus meet you? What words and images come to mind that you can carry with you? Out of this love, where are you called to live out Christ's example of the towel and basin? For some of us, this call relates directly to the church today, both in the broader global church and our individual congregations. The call to rebuild the church is not one of capital campaigns, larger church campuses, or partnership with the empires of this world, but to grow in love, confront evil, and serve the excluded. Since we carry the church with us into all areas of life, work, campus, government, family, we may also be called to reframe how people see Jesus reflected in these areas as well. What are ways you may be called to humble service as a model of rebuilding a divided and ailing church community, a divided and ailing world? As we end our time together, 
We invite you to continue on this journey of walking with Jesus, the incarnate God, renewed by his love and strengthened by his joy. We will close with one of the prayers that Francis prayed over his brothers. Almighty, eternal, just, and merciful God, grant us in our misery the grace to do for you alone what we know you want us to do, and to always desire what pleases you, inwardly cleansed, interiorly enlightened, and inflamed by the fire of your Holy Spirit, that we may be able to follow in the footprints of your beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And by your grace alone, may we make our way to you, Most High who live and rule in perfect trinity and simple unity and are glorified, God Almighty, forever and ever. Amen.